Welcome to Breaking Barriers Project Institute Radio. We're on the air. Frank Joseph Satterwhite on Wally. How are you today? I'm fine. And yourself? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, this is, uh, uh, I guess, the best thing for me to do, because I've known you since we were in college together, is to let you tell the audience who you are and why we called you. I think that uh, you're one of the most significant people I've met in my life, but that's just my personal opinion. Uh, so can you start with going to Howard University and go from there? Yeah, I enrolled in Howard in um, 1960. It was the same year that um, Kwame Ture, uh, Stokely Carmichael, and a whole bunch of other SNCC people came to Howard as freshmen, as well as many, many other people that uh, have had distinguished careers, noteworthy careers. Uh, I left Howard after... Uh, five years. I had a double major in uh, elementary education and math. And um, my fifth year at Howard, I spent the entire year student teaching at the elementary level in uh, Washington, D.C. school in the first semester. In the second semester, I did student teaching in math at a high school uh, in that in that area. I left there uh, because I was really, really inspired by the dean of students. Carl Anderson, who took me under his wing and mentored me. And the profession that he's in is called college student personnel work. Uh, you know, housing, financial aid, admissions, all the range of things that happen administratively related to students in um, colleges. And so I went to Southern Illinois University, got a master's degree. That was the alma mater of Carl Anderson. And uh, in college student personnel and Intending to then, um, having gone to Howard, I wanted to be as my goal in life to be a president of a historically black university. So I went to Stanford University after getting a master's degree in at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale and arrived at Stanford in about 1967, uh, the fall. And um, that was a period of a uh, high level of activism in the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, you name it, it was happening here. You had the San Francisco State strike, the Berkeley strike, you had the Black Panther Party, you had the um, a whole range of boycotts and strikes and protests around the Vietnamese War, around women's issues, around Latino issues, and on and on. And so I came out of that era, uh, that maybe first 12 to 18 months being a uh, student at Howard, uh, pardon me, at Stanford, I came in that, out of that area really quite radicalized. I, at, at Howard, I was sensitive to issues of black and white, um, but not engaged. Uh, once I came out of the era here in the Bay Area, the, uh, for, within the first couple of years of moving here, I became somewhat radicalized. And the way that that happened was when I came to Stanford as a graduate student, I joined the BSU right away, and all BSU students were expected to uh, go to a local community called East Palo Alto, which is where I now live, and volunteer time and service. And since my background was education, I began to volunteer uh, uh, in a tutoring program at a high school. 
and then eventually uh, became the coordinator of that tutoring program. Simultaneously, there was a protest at one of the local community colleges, San Mateo College, and the black leadership and black and brown students that were protesting left that college and decided to start their own college uh, in East Palo Alto. Um, and um, because my field of interest was higher education, uh, I naturally then transitioned out of the work as a tutor coordinator for high school students to helping to develop and build Nairobi College. The actual founding leader, his name was Bob Hoover, but there were half a dozen, dozen of us who from the beginning kind of devoted a lot of time and energy to the college. And the college um, the, had its first classes probably in about 1968, early 69, and um, survived for about a year. I mean, 10 years, probably a decade. And during, at its zenith, I mean, the college probably enrolled 500 students from all over the world. Um, lots of students from a number of African countries and then a lot of local students who um, were here. And because of the town I lived in, East Palo Alto was predominantly black. A few miles up the road in a unincorporated area called Fair Oaks was a largely Latino population. And so the Latino students started a Nairobi campus in Fair Oaks, and Black students started a Nairobi campus in East Palo Alto. Why Nairobi? Uh, during that period, when one looked to the African continent, there were maybe a half a dozen places that were deemed to be progressive, you know. Um, of course, Kwame Nkrumah, Ghana, Guinea-Bissau, um, the, to some degree, what was going on in Nigeria, but especially Kenya. Uh, was lifted up, and Tanzania were all li both lifted up as really progressive places. And uh, before I got here, there was a youth program where uh, the leadership polled the students about which name, what, what would they like to name this community if it were to take on an African name? And out of that poll, the name Nairobi surfaced. And so from that point forward, those of us who were a part of the community, the African-American community, called it Nairobi. And we, many of us call it Nairobi to this day. The, uh, so my role with the college was I was on the board, I was on the faculty. I had a job that <coughs> allowed me to travel all over the country. So I was, was an ambassador, a fundraiser, <coughs> an organizer, uh, yeah, just a number of things. And my whole spirit and set of values, I mean, People use the term servant leadership, but it really is to be in service to advancing community. And so at the one hand, I've always tried to sit at the feet of the masters so that I would learn and grow and evolve. And I don't need I don't need to have a mic, you know, to lead the charge. And on the other then, what as I was growing and evolving, just being of service to whatever was happening. And at that time, I was over a long period of time, I was in service to the college. The um, just one other point, let me just say about that era is that you'll recall that the Symbionese Liberation Army kidnapped Patty Hearst. And one of the SLA's demands was that the Hearst family sponsor food centers across the Bay Area. I don't remember the number, but the SLA designated Nairobi College as a food center. And that happened. They brought a lot of food, a lot of people got fed. Well, then once um, the Patty Hearst thing was done, uh, let me just say one other point. So the college 
was financed because uh, it was on an accreditation track. And being on an accreditation track, it was able to participate in the federal student loan programs. And so all of our students had loans. And that's how they paid tuition and paid all the college costs. Probably 95% of the college costs were supported by uh, federal student loan payments that the students were receiving. Well, after the SLA thing happened, then it's my contention that the Hearst family decided to target all those places that had been designated as food centers, even though we had nothing to do with the SLA. And so uh, we were on a track at the college to accreditation, but right after the SLA thing, then the accrediting team, review team came in and said, we no longer qualify for accreditation. They would not allow us to continue to be on a, pro a, a, a track toward progressive, progressing toward full accreditation. And then once the accreditation team denied us of uh, the status of good standing on the accreditation track, then the feds no longer allowed us to participate in the student loan program. And so there was no money. And so eventually the college uh, uh, closed. Uh, we had, there was an effort to continue to sustain the college uh, after the federal student money was uh, eliminated, but we weren't we weren't able to do that. Around that time, um, so out of that era, everything in this community, uh, it was a predominantly black community, took on an African flavor, a Nairobi flavor, and so the youth programs, the school board, the a health center was established called Charles Drew Health Center. The uh, criminal justice, probation programs, cultural arts programs. Uh, East Palo Alto became known for this education system. We created what they call Afrocentric schools now, but back then we called them independent schools from pre-K all the way up through Nairobi College. There were independent or Afrocentric schools, private uh, bodies that school students could go to. And so we got known for that independent school network uh, that not only happened locally, but we were connected to a lot of you know, independent school activity around the country. In fact, Nairobi College hosted the first national meeting of independent schools during that era. And then uh, the um, only other thing I would say is that uh, we also were a cultural center. Uh, so culture and arts, Nairobi was a cultural hub for the black experience in the Bay Area. There was another hub. There was a hub in San Francisco, a hub in Oakland, and a hub in East Palo Alto. Uh, and let me just say that in 72 or 3, there was a national black convening in Indiana hosted by the Gary, Indiana, Richard Hatcher, uh, Charles Diggs, who was the mayor of Detroit, and Amamu Baraka, who was out of Newark, but uh, the, perhaps the most leading progressive uh, uh, activist at that time. And when they wrote the proceedings of that national meeting uh, that was held in Gary, in the first paragraph, I don't remember all four cities, it said something like from, uh, say, at, at, uh, Los Angeles to New York. And then the and from Atlanta to East Palo Alto. So we were one of the four hubs <laughs> that got named uh, in the proceedings for that national, that national convening. So uh, one of the things that was central to life in East Palo Alto, where we were an unincorporated area administered by uh, all white county board of supervisors. And so uh, becoming incorporated or forming a city was really important. And my own, I, 
In today's jargon, I was the lead organizer or the campaign manager for the local movement to make East Palo Alto a city, which got launched um, in about 79, and we became a city in 1983. Um, Let me just say one other thing, uh, and let me go back. So when I was at Stanford uh, that very first year, while we were doing the work in East Palo Alto, that was also the... uh, that year in the, in the next spring when Martin Luther King got assassinated. And so the Black Student Union, of course, as Black Student Unions did across the country, uh, began to organize and uh, protest uh, against the university. So the university had a large convocation uh, to honor Martin Luther King's life right after his assassination. And at that convocation, the Black students set up front and then uh, when the president began to speak, we all got up, went on the stage and asked for the mic, took the mic is what how people describe that experience now it's, uh, in, in the annals of, Sam, uh, of Stanford. And I had played a role in drafting the demands. And so I ended up reading the demands at that Stanford convocation uh, where uh, the Black Student Union issued 10 demands to the university to, uh, around curriculum, enrollment, faculty, uh, studies, I mean, just a range of things. And interestingly enough, as I reviewed that document, we, in a couple of places in those demands, were not only asking for space for Black people, but we were asking for space for Pacific Islanders, Asians, and other uh, people of color, uh, not just Black students. So we actually were the face of the political struggle for many, many groups do that work that we did. When we became a city, uh, I was on the first city council and over the course of the life of the city, I've been you know, pretty active uh, in a range of things that um, have happened in East Palo Alto. We um, are fairly small, low wealth, but still stable. Uh, and the level of political activism here uh, in, among community residents, community members, is really, really, really still very, very high. My profession has been to work as a management consultant with nonprofit, community-based, grassroots organizations in my career. And I humbly say, I have contracted, unduplicated, probably 12 to 1,300 organizations in maybe 130, 40 cities, uh, just about every state. If you take the northern part of the USA up there where there are no people uh, next to the Canadian border, I work with people from those areas, but I haven't actually done direct work in those areas. And so my 24-7 was helping to grow, support, sustain community-based organizations whose purpose or mission was in transforming people, the condition of Black people and eventually other people of color as my clientele expanded. And I've been doing that and I still do it now. Um, so yeah, the, on the civic side, most of my work was focused around East Palo Alto. On the professional side, most of my work was um, being a resource in, the, in that whole notion of servant, servant, servant leadership, being a resource to community-based grassroots organizations all over the country. And I have worked with probably some of the most prominent ones that you and I, that mo- many people hear about and know. But I never had the mic. I never got in the newspapers. I never needed to have the, the attention drawn to my work. It was the, the value of my work came from seeing uh, organizations that were in tension and crisis, often coming together, aligning their thinking, uh, 
putting together a, a way forward uh, and then uh, coming out of the, the, the tension and the conflict uh, where, with people a little more aligned, a little clearer, a little committed to each other and to the work. And uh, I've seen a lot of the groups that I work with, you know, just tra transform. Um, and the transformation comes not because of who I am or what I do. I, my job is just to create the space for people to discover their own beauty and manage it. And so, yeah, I'll take credit for helping creating that space, but all of the transformation comes from the people themselves. Um, I leapfrog well, some of my history, but let me stop there. Well, let me say that. Let me say this: uh, the Breaking Barriers Project Institute, as a part of its plans, is creating, starting with a podcast, a conference on economic development, economic empowerment, as a part of our mission of promoting African American history and culture. In that process. We're starting with the podcast, which will follow this one, uh, with these uh, institutions uh, in Washington, D.C., and uh, people like yourself. Uh, our subject matter will be reparations. Reparations have been passed in Evanston, Illinois, and I think recently in Asheville, North Carolina. So that is a movement that is more structured in terms of, of, of targeting economic development uh, in the right way, at the same time redressing uh, previous uh, issues, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll have to definitely call you, along with Larry Gibson. You are exactly what God wanted us to have. That said, uh, we probably- Let me just make a point on that, just two things. Um, one, I've been connected um, to the reparations movement for a long time, and so I think what you just cited about it is is quite accurate. And But again, I never have the mic or the visibility. I just really support the work. And so any way that I can be a resource or um, a treasure to this vision uh, for moving this work forward, of course, I'll be there for you. Uh, I, what, what can I tell you, except uh, uh, I look forward to seeing you physically when this whole thing is over. But meanwhile, I would definitely keep you informed. We hope you'll come back and talk to us again as we move ahead. It works for me. It's always a pleasure. Okay. I did want to say, though, before we wrap up, you were my closest friend while I was at Howard University. So I just want to thank you for being a part of my life. Well, it's interesting because uh, uh, I'm your son's God. I'm Thumper's godfather. And I've been in touch with uh, uh, his mother over Facebook. We've become connected through Facebook. So uh, and I, 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 we also remember we went to Gary Bowden's wedding and we could sing. Yeah, New York I do is, yeah, right. And oh, and so when you get off the phone, not the phone. When, when we stop this, you should go back onto the uh, uh, to our, our podcast and look at the podcast with Larry Mizell because right after you and I left Gary Bowden's wedding, Larry Mizell and I and, and Rodney O'Neill and Zenny Lyon got into a car and went to Los Angeles. As soon as the uh, uh, riots ended, we got there. Uh, and Larry Mizell is very connected to uh, the Jackson Five, but that's for another day. Is, anyway, is it Freddie Purnell? Wasn't he there too? Freddie Purnell won Oscars for uh, uh, yeah, um, what is it? Uh, Saturday Night Fever. Uh, the, yeah. the short is that's why we're talking. That the time is right. So I'm going to get back with you uh, real soon, and I appreciate talking to you. Yeah. Take care now. Okay. Good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Find us on breakingbarriershu.org.